0: Welcome to Photography Insights, the show that goes behind the scenes and interviews people from the photography world. I'd like to welcome you all back, and we are now on episode 125. So I'm really happy to bring you another amazing guest for this week's show. Eric Klonsman is an educator at the Rochester Institute, artist and damn nice guy. was recommended by Elizabeth Stone. I'm so so pleased recently with the list of fascinating kind people. Eric is from the the Rochester area of New York and although it was famous for Kodak in the past it's not the same picture anymore. Rochester has some other history for us too as we've already interviewed the one and only Clay McBride from the same university and a former student, Nick Brandreth. Anyway, Eric started his own studio called Booksmart in 2005 and even made some colour printing profiles for a number of well-known international companies. His studio allows him to process film, but he also has a fully functional darkroom and Aladdin's arcade of Kodak memorabilia And you can even try gum, carbon and platinum printing on site. Eric talks to us about teaching students the fundamentals of colour profiling. And this is designed to give people a grounding and learn from there. Having this allows Eric to help people understand what paper works really well for their requirements. And he's so experienced, he could smell and taste the difference in paper stocks without looking. He's a man of various projects including one called payphones which helped him learn more about the impoverished area of Rochester. He chose to set up his studio there for the low costs but there are a lot of families on low incomes. Now the project has turned into looking at where payphones are located and comparing them to ...crime, race and economics of the area. Another one of his projects was called um, Los Alamos... ...and it was a group of portraits he shot in 20 minutes about firefighters. He shot these with 4x5 cameras... ...but wanted to be respectful and provide them with something... ...so he used a Polaroid. Thou art will give... ...is another one of Eric's projects we touch on through the podcast. It's all about penitentiaries... ...and giving people a chance to have penance to God. Eric describes how these places were built... ...and why there is in, why there is such an importance on light, placement and design for religious reasons. And because he has worked on bookbinding for far, ...he noticed some interesting logs from the penitentiary dating back to the 1820-1830s and was hooked. The final project we talk about with Eric was something called Fake News something he started in the uh, last administration um, of the US Presidency and it was all because of his children debating in school instead of out playing. Eric then realised he needed to record these newspaper headlines and store them as archives for the future. So in total, he's taken approximately 35,000 screenshots and put them in a volume of 15 books where he hopes to show them to the world for free. We talk about teaching, large format digital printing, Finding Your Way, Experience with Gear, Color Management Systems, Color Casts, Smelling Paper, Nuclear Reactors, Developing Fast, The Demise of Kodak and Xerox, Lifelines and Payphones. And of course, there'll be links to Eric's own website and also his studio site. For anyone interested in doing prints in the New York area um, and um, things like books and colour profiling, you can do everything, so do check him out. And before I move you on to the interview with Eric, uh, I'd just like to remind everybody, so the TMax 3200 competition has now closed. We'll be sorting out, looking through all the entries within the next two weeks and let you know who's won the competition and the runner-up. We'll get the prizes shipped as soon as possible. So do bear with us. Um, There will be a special short podcast about it, where I get the two judges on, and we'll go through some of the work. So do look out for that very shortly. And I'm glad to say we've had another iTunes review, so I'm just going to read that one out to you. And this one is from the lovely Sadie Minton, who was on very recently. Working alongside Andrew was fantastic. My first podcast and won't be my last. Andrew has excellent communicative skills and very knowledgeable about the subjects he presents. Variable informative at each and every podcast. I highly recommend subscribing and also participating i certainly hope for the opportunity again thank you sadie some lovely words there and i did enjoy uh, that podcast it was nice to know what it was like from the other part of you Uh, so many of us um, shoot models and um, i think unless you've done both elements you probably can't appreciate what it's all about so uh, yeah very very fascinating So that's all I've got to say for now. Um, If you do want to check out any of my work, obviously, just go to my website, flogger.co.uk. And for now, let's play the music and await our lovely guest, Eric Gunsman. welcome to the show eric thank you for having me now it's great to uh, come across your work uh, another nice recommend uh, it, it's been obviously quite funny that we know another mutual friend in uh,
1: rochester isn't it? yeah we know it sounds like we know quite a few people together but the photo world's pretty small
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's small by thousands of miles but uh, i'm gonna have to read out something so um Eric is uh Nick Bandruff's um former teacher. Uh Nick's the guy who works at the Eastman Museum for anyone listening. Um so do check out previous podcast. Uh he's got nothing but compliments for you.
1: He must be wanting to get it paid later on.
0: <laughs> I know he was saying you know what a nice friend you are. Um he was telling you about a studio, um, and he said actually uh his two favourite classes uh we're uh mcbride not yours. that's all right body joking
1: (laughs) mcbride wasn't there yet so i know he's lying
0: okay fair enough um he did say uh what is it here um let me say, um tell him new jersey wrestlers are better than wrestlers from pennsylvania
1: (laughs) he wishes in his in his dreams (laughs) <laughs> yeah, when he was my student, he was I wrestled at RIT, and Nick was wrestling. But okay. Nick only lasted one year, and then he quit, you know, because he was a New Jersey wrestler. Where you know Pennsylvania wrestlers, um, we make it the full amount of years, you know, wrestling in college. Yeah, uh, but no, that was one of the other things that we held in common. So,
0: no, that's cool. You must have been a a nice influence for him, though, because um, obviously he's gone on to lovely things with Eastman Museum, haven't he?
1: Yeah, and that's where, luckily, I had the privilege of teaching at RIT, and so many of our students and alumni are doing such cool things. And that's where, whether they go off and teach at other universities, Nick working at the Eastman Museum, so many of them are Mm in New York City, L.A., just the diversity of what they're doing is pretty incredible. So, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, I mean, that's why I always say when you're teaching, you're learning just as much from your students, and then hopefully once they're no longer your student, you get to learn even more if they come back. And keep that communication going. Mm-hmm. So
0: I think it's a very different thing to teach in, say, children and that into
1: Yeah, no, that's where my wife is a teacher in the Raj City School okay. District. And I say I'm not a teacher. I tell people all the time anything mm-hmm. that I've learned about teaching is from her. Um I get mm-hmm. to be more of a kind of a mentor or collaborator in the classroom where mm-hmm. you know I don't have to be doing Applying discipline and all these other pieces, but I do learn about approaches in education from her when I'm struggling to get across to certain students. I'll pick her brain and she can educate me so
0: <laughs> that's free tuition you should pay for that
1: yeah uh I take care of uh different things for her so I hope when are, she needs posters in her classroom, I'll put them at the studio so it's a it's a bar it's a barter uh, system
0: oh I love like yeah so it should yep. be it, it must be very fulfilling um when you hear back from people and that you've taught that have uh, gone into the field sort of thing because surely not everyone does
1: yeah no actually i think that's one of the best things is when i hear back from former students and sometimes when i don't hear from certain ones it kind of hurts a little bit at times mm. the ones that you feel like you're really connected with um and there's, mm-hmm. there's, like, there's a few that I could think of right now that, you know, I wish I had heard from. One I just heard back through another person because I, I won the photo review recently, um, which is here in the United States. And my old student emails him about all these compliments, and then it gets passed to me. I'm like, why didn't you just email me? So, it was just kind yeah. of, <laughs> so we could actually talk more. So it was kind of interesting.
0: So. Yeah. No, no, that's cool. But, um, for anyone listening, I can actually see into Eric's studio here. So um, he's not just a standard educator, right? you? have got a very different role, aren't you?
1: Yeah. Uh, with photography, I teach most of the geek classes. But one of my main goals has been when I started teaching was to keep my studio. Um, I started a studio in 2005 called Booksmart Studio, where we do a lot of the geek side, color management for like Nova and Canson years gone by. We made all their generic profiles. We don't do that any longer so working with industry doing beta testing that type of stuff and then printing for artists and photographers and then making books but the reason why i want to have that is i want to keep my hands in it to make sure i stay relevant for for the students so
0: no no, that's cool so you are talking of um a digital studio in essence and large format printers but you still have is the dark room part of the uni or is that part of your studio?
1: Um, it's actually here at the studio. I have a dark room for both traditional okay. black and white. We have Jobos for processing film, but I don't do that commercially yeah. for other people. Um, it's okay. one of those things I guess I've always been afraid to mess up other individuals' film because you can't get it <laughs> back. But yeah. at the same time, I invite people like Nick Brandith, uh, Nick Marshall, who's also at the East Museum, and others to come down and play. Um, I have this facility yeah. where I have the digital printers. The dark room downstairs, we have a book boundary here, and the reason is just that community and that collaboration really helps to push my work. I can pick their brain, they can pick mine, and that's really what the studio is now. It's more of an atelier than anything else for the Rochester community, and that for yeah. others, we you know will print and ship their work, uh, but I get to a lot of my clients trust me to work on their files um, without much guidance. so
0: Wowless. That's quite a compliment, though. That's lovely.
1: Uh, years and years of uh, building trust, I guess you could say.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, I mean, it does take years, though, doesn't it? It's not like um, anyone just knows this stuff. And like we were saying earlier, a lot of these elements are not known by us and not highly practiced, so it's a really nice thing.
1: Yeah, and that's um, the piece to it. My students all the time like, oh, I want to go out and start a fine print shop. like how can I get to where you're at? I'm like, well, I got lucky. I got, you know, the Innova uh, fine art paper company and sponsored my work, took me to Photokina over mm-hmm. to the UK for PMA and even to Australia, and then introduced me to cancel and infinity who I also supported. So it's like that day and age, like kind of that boats already out to the ocean. I tell them it's like, you need to invent your own way of finding who you want to work with. And at first you can't pick and choose because you're going to have student loans mm-hmm. to pay for. Um, but what else can you bring to it besides printing? Uh, can you offer, you know, other digital services like scanning? Because not everybody has good scanners now. Um, it's mm-hmm. always changing, this world of photography.
0: So. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. And especially, I mean, the digital is always changing. The, I mean, the film community side, well, not just community, but product-wise, I mean... If you go back five years, I bet there was hardly any inventions. You look now, there are so many things that are coming to market already on the market for the film world. It's crazy. Mm -hmm.
1: And even digital, I mean, that's constantly changing too. I mean, the last two years, even with the idea of a lot of the companies that are doing pixel shift, where now you're taking multiple raw files. So you're getting true Mm -hmm. light per each pixel for RGB and more. So I mean, even that whole technology, it's still growing within the digital realm too. It's, it's mm-hmm. never gonna end. And that's why my biggest goal as an educator is some, I don't wanna give them the solution to everything or give them cookie cutter. They need to learn how to solve the problems when they get out. They need to know what resources mm-hmm. to trust. Um, one of my favorite things is always, well, I, I, I heard about this online. I'm like, did they do a comparison or was it just one, their own workflow that they were testing? And oftentimes, oh, it was yeah. one workflow. I'm like, well, until they start testing it and doing comparisons, it doesn't matter. So. Yeah.
0: yeah. It is important, like you say, though, to give people the tools uh, and understand it. Because it, it's come up quite a lot with artists uh, recently where they've come up with an idea. And some of it's because they've got the right tool to do uh, to use. Mm-hmm. And that's because their skills are so wide ranging. Are they, their field of vision is whatever is around me. I can use, whereas a photographer might be this little box that sits in front of them. And then that's the only technology in it.
1: Um, some photographers, that's why I think I hang out with photographers that have that same broad vision. And that's yeah. literally what this studio provides. You can go downstairs and work on carbon printing or gum bichromate, platinum, silver gelatin oh. or come up here scan it on a flex type or the drum scanners and then print digital um, so that's why i wow. like i said i i tell everybody all the time i'm spoiled and that's why i try to invite people down here
0: yeah so. wow definitely that would be amazing to try because obviously i only read about these things and um it'll be a very gradual process for me to be able to see some of this stuff and get my hands dirty but it's exciting yeah. Yeah, um, I think I think it's great that um, people have the tools because I think that can help their art or their, you know, um, development as well.
1: Absolutely. Uh, and to be able to challenge yourself if you, know, you think this might work, but you have these other tools at your resource doing that testing. Make sure mm-hmm. you have you chose the right tool to help push your vision too. to me is important because I can't yeah. just say, um, you know, we need to work with this. And that's where we have an incredible photo cage at RIT. We have from phase one backs to all the digital cameras that I just mentioned, except Lumix. I'm the only person on campus with a Lumix, which is
0: pretty oh, funny. Oh, wow. Okay. So, <laughs> that was funny. Crikey, you must have a lot of gear there.
1: I've, I've gotten lucky in some ways. Um, I would have never <laughs> had a Lumix. I won the um, Association of Photography Award. In 2019 for oh. Open Series. Wow! And Lumix sponsored it. Otherwise, I probably would never have gone out to buy the Lumix. Um, but now they they were nice to me.
0: For, oh, that's nice, though. Yeah. So. Oh, that's really really cool. Um, I, I think it's a it's a really great thing. Um, the stuff you're teaching as well, because like I say, I, I think there are gaps. Um, people have. Um, Talks about printing their work digitally uh, and then it's um uh how do you want to send your work to me and i'm like i have no clue what you're talking about uh, icc profiles and all this sort of stuff mm-hmm. it means nothing to me because um why would it i've never been in the industry
1: yeah and that's a big part of what i used to do is a lot of the educational side of it um that's where like if you go up to Canson a lot of the tutorials that are up there on how to work with profiles um they have, hmm. still have all of our instructions all of our screenshots up there um, but that's a big part of it because we're just trying to help provide that solution to get you started more than anything else mm-hmm. back then and it's really and the way i explained to color management to everybody except the phds at RIT is color management is just learning the specifics for your workflow your printer your paper and what colors can be produced and then from there you're trying to okay. you know what you have from your camera well what is the gamut? What colors can be produced, and how do we squeeze what could be the size of a grapefruit down to the size of a lemon and make sure it still looks good? So, the PhDs oh, at RIT okay. would not be happy with me at RIT for explaining like, "Oh, that's all it is." <laughs> so,
0: that's fair enough. I do, I do think it's um, something we could all benefit from though, because obviously this there's the whole side of this workflow in it from um, either getting your image uh, digitally or scanned and then actually printing it off. I mean, are we talking of uh, monks and monks learning something like this?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. My one class, which is the fine print workflow for the students is what, twice a week, 15 weeks, but they're still only getting, what I tell them is they're learning one paper and one printer. From there, they have to deep dive further because there's so many variables. And the way I do things works for me, but they'll hear from Clay Patrick McBride, you know, all these different faculty at RIT, and we all have our own workflows. And those students then need to take what tools work for what type of work they want to make and utilize those. But what I teach in the fine print workflows, basically how to enter dummy mode once you go to print, because you shouldn't be changing things. If you're working with the color managed system, Everything that you want to change, me to in Photoshop or Lightroom, then once you hit that, you're just going through repeat mode, doing the same thing because you don't want to be chasing your tail. This is the way I try to explain it. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. So I suppose it's the same when people do um, uh, um, the little tool they get for like the monitors yep. uh, to make sure the colors
1: correct. Pretty good old i one display to make sure you know at least you're looking at something that's proper. Um, properly balanced and we did the same thing this is where thinks, oh this is digital it's only this but Mm -hmm. if you think about it if somebody was trying to learn the zone system with film we went through the same Mm -hmm. amount of testing we standardized our water we standardized our developer our time Mm -hmm. all that went into so this is nothing new that we need to everybody expects digital be simple and and done but Mm -hmm. if you really want to be able to control it as well as you need to you still have to do that testing um my students get their jaws at the floor when I start talking to them about black and white printing, which is my specialty, I, I say. And with okay. car management, everything's, oh, I want, I need neutrality. Well, my goal then is to, once you get that neutrality, is you're going to add some color cast back because your darkroom papers always had a color cast between Burger, Ilford, Agfa, Kodak. You would choose what you liked and then your different contrast ranges. So, yeah. Now we have that control to keep that repetition. It's just like uh, John Cohn with his pa piezography. You can choose your color casts and you can even mix between them. I don't want to say you're stuck with it, but once you make a decision, you're not going to shift that. Yeah. Well, which is fine. I don't shift my color cast that I use for all my work anyway. But again, yeah. it's not neutrality. He's introducing color casts for that reason. So.
0: so you've learned all this. So you could maybe look at a, a paper and say that works well with this sort of tint
1: absolutely and that's one of the things i try to help the students and other individuals when they come to print or over the phone Mm -hmm. i will talk to them about trying to help narrow down what their paper choices would be Mm -hmm. for their subject matter and then we always Mm -hmm. do everything by proof then we'd send them maybe three or four that might work sometimes we have to worry about price point um, but my mm-hmm. students also, I, I like to joke around with them a lot because I make them buy every sample pack that they can. And they print mm-hmm. the same target on all of them so they have their own resource book. And a few of them like to then try to challenge me be like, oh, what paper is this one? And if I rattled off, they're just like, how did you know that? I'm like, well, number one, the way it smells, the way it tastes, and the way it prints. They taste. I'm like, the coatings are all different. I'm like, but I didn't like your paper because I knew what it was, so don't worry. <laughs> especially in these times of covid when we all have masks
0: on so oh god yeah so <laughs> yeah that's interesting because to me that's a proper skill and that that's been like an Ilford master of previous years isn't it i i,
1: I hope so i hope that's why i'm hmm. teaching in rit
0: <laughs> sounds like it yeah <laughs> no no it's, it's an awesome thing so let's move on to some of your amazing projects because it uh, obviously these are the first things i've come across and um you know it, it's really amazing i mean why not start on something that's um, meaningful and um at home to you like with the payphones? to be honest okay
1: so the payphones is one of my latest bodies of work i'm still working on it um what happened okay. was my studio Booksmart studio for 10 years was about two blocks from the eastman museum uh, the building yeah. owner died his his son put us on a month to month. And back then I had 13,000 square feet and which is a pretty big complex. We had two galleries. Um, when I got, when I no longer had employees, I started subleasing some of the space out. So it would have taken a long time if they wanted to make us move to get out. And so I started searching for different space. And uh-huh. at first I was thinking, cause the area that in, of Rochester that the Eastman museum is in is called Neighborhood of the Arts. So at first I was looking there, looking there, and we couldn't find a place for under $250,000. And there's no way I could afford that with teaching full time. Yeah. And the studio is more, as my wife calls it, it's my supporting element that really supports my work. And yeah. so then a friend said, look at this place. It was a, an old church for 40000 US dollars. And I'm like, wow. But it was impossible to heat in the winter here in Rochester. So I, it opened my mind to looking elsewhere. And then wow. I found this place, which was ironically one of my former customers, and she was trying to sell it. She'd been trying to sell it for five years. So it was very, very cheap by this point. And wow. so within 29 days, we closed. The first truck I backed up, three seven year olds came over and started helping me carry stuff in. Halfway through, they're like, Are we going to get paid? I'm like, I don't have any money. I'm moving. And they're like, well, what do you have? And I go through the cabinets and there were coffee mugs. And they're like, sweet. Can we pick which one we can have? I'm like, yeah. They walked away like I paid them each $100. Um, Harry, Elijah, and Grumpy. Um, Harry's the only one that's still in the neighborhood. My son, when he comes down to the studio, will play with him when he's around. Um, Grumpy, I asked him, like, what's your real name? He's like, It's grumpy. I'm like, no, your real name. He goes, I've been grumpy since I've been one year old because my mother took a lollipop away from me. I'm like, okay, you are grumpy then. (laughs) Um, But a a lot of my other friends and colleagues started labeling the area where my studio was at as a war zone or um, just not great things. And my experience was completely different where I got to know many of the families that are around here. And Hmm. when they say war zone, what they're labeling it as is average income for most families in this area is between twenty to $30,000 a year, which is next to nothing. Hmm. Um, it doesn't mean that they're, yeah. they're not working. Some of them are working two to three minimum wage jobs here in the U.S. And with that in mind, that's what they are labeling as these against these individuals. And I started looking around as to why, and there were three things, um, neighborhood bars, corner stores, and payphones. There was an abundance of them. Mm -hmm. So I started documenting it. I had no intention of making this a project. And then a gallery director came out from SIPA, which is in Buffalo, New York. It was started by Robert Hirsch. He came out for a studio visit because they were thinking about showing my penitentiary work. And he walked in and I I have the penitentiary work out ready to go to show him. And I left a few work prints out. And he goes, what's this? Like, well, this is something, I don't know what it is. I just started it and he goes we don't want to show your penitentiary work we want to show this i'm like i only have like 10 shots done i have no idea where it's going <sighs> and that was in 2017. um that show opens oh. this april in basically five weeks from now oh. uh, and it's going to have a lot of different elements to it this project has it's won more awards than my east state work ever has I've sold more of the work, which is really odd. Uh, but it's going to have a few different facets to it, which will be my photographs. Then I'm, I am—I was sponsored by the uh, the communication company, Frontier. They gave me the list of all of our payphones. We still have 1,455 in Rochester. Um,
0: which is a It is.
1: And as we probably have more than most other places in the United States, not all of them work. So some serve only as social markers where some are still lifelines. And so yeah. what I'm trying to do with the maps is I wanna show census data, the crime maps to show there's a direct correlation to race and economics. It does not completely mesh with the crime maps. Um, and then I'm also, my wife, uh, she's a great sport. I've been buying payphones. So I have some payphones down here at the <laughs> studio and as yeah, I'm working with a gentleman out of Oregon who runs a not-for-profit called Futel, which is putting payphones okay. back into cities and they're free. Um, to make sure people have them wow. as a lifeline. And there's a whole other explanation to what he's doing beyond that, but he's helping me to hack them and put the stories I'm recording of the individuals that still use these payphones here in Rochester on the phone so it's in the gallery you can pick it up push a button and hear different people's stories so those are really the three main facets and the last one i'll explain will be wherever i have this shown i want to challenge those communities to go out and document whatever the social marker is we decide and in buffalo there was enough payphones so we're inviting Hmm. the buffalo community to go out and photograph the payphones in fact that starts basically next week up until the beginning of June. They're gonna submit the files to me with the cross streets and the address. And I will take those, I'll print them and they're gonna be, cause there's three galleries at SEPA. Outside the basement one, there's extra wall space. We're going to install their artwork. But then I get to be the juror and decide the top six pieces. And Fuji has donated three digital cameras. So the top three, um, participants, because we need some sort of motivation to get people out in COVID and cold weather. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh,
1: and yeah. then, the, you know, if the fourth place will be stuck with a gift certificate to print at my place. And then the last two will be stuck with one of my prints. So, <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> so the,
1: but <laughs> the reason I'm throwing all this out, there's a lot of different facets to this payphone project. Yeah,
0: so. That's really interesting. I like the um, idea of involving the community. That's wonderful.
1: Yeah, and that's, I'm hoping that will get more engagement because at the end, we yeah. will map all their locations in Buffalo and look at that census information. So that way we can bring it more to the region and it's not just Rochester. Why are we looking at Rochester? Um, and even the maps, because I joke with my students all the time that everybody has ADD or ADHD. So the maps will, there will be a transparency. And I will black out where the key is, and you have to lift up the density map of all the payphones to see what mm. is the comparison that you're looking at. So, what might be about you know race? One might be economics, but by that interaction and making them move it, hopefully they will retain mm. some of that information a little bit more than if they were just walking by it. So,
0: that's beautiful. So,
1: I uh and
0: it. It's so funny that people like yourself, this work comes out of nowhere.
1: Yeah. My wife at first was like, why are you photographing payphones? i like, I don't <laughs> know. I'm because of what was happening when we bought the studio. I didn't have a clear vision. Hmm. And then I wrote the first statement and she's like, this is my students. Because 60% of the, I think it's now 65% of the students in the Rochester City School District are living below the poverty threshold. So many of them are homeless and that's why we have the worst school district in all of New York state. And with that in mind, so as soon as she read what my project was about, that I was documenting first that they were social markers, then that their lifelines for certain people, she said, this is my, these are my students was her reaction. And it just, it's, it's grown. Wow. And now because of Instagram, it's growing nationwide. It's, which is a whole other animal. So,
0: yeah, well, that's that's nice because I hope it gets you respect and um, people looking at your work and wanting to come and work with you.
1: Hopefully. And that's where really the studio, I'm not looking to pick up necessarily more clients, but it's really just making hmm. people think for at least one second before they label somebody is all that I'm hoping. Just mm. If I get one or two seconds out of somebody, I've succeeded. So.
0: Yeah, I, I, I really like that um, because we are uh, – we're too, too easily persuaded about areas and problems. I don't go near that person because they've got this and that you shouldn't live in that area. Like you say, and it's not always like that. It's down to your interpretation. isn't Absolutely.
1: it? Absolutely. And I'm so glad I have this studio, especially for my kids. My son is 10 and mm-hmm. he's learned because he so many of his friends where we live in the suburbs, we live there because the schools are better. Uh, but so many of his friends are privileged. It's the only way to put it, where he now Mm. has learned from Harry and some of the other kids around here, like what they don't have. And so when he's done with something, he will ask, do you mind if I give it to Harry or one of the other kids? Mm. And we're like, no, if you're done using it. And so we have, he's thinking about them. He's thinking about other people, which is all I could ask as a parent.
0: Yeah, it's 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 an amazing feeling.
1: Yeah, it's like, I feel like I'm doing something right. It. It's the only
0: way I can say it. No. So, yeah. Like you say, it's it's down to um, some of us to be uh, good people. I yeah.
1: Think. And that's where we like, said doing what we can with our kids. And that's where, unfortunately, my daughter, who just turned six, is hooked on payphones. She's actually my best critic. <laughs> she can spot a payphone now before I can. In fact, right before COVID hit last February, we were out in San Francisco area because I had a, a solo show out there, and. We're going to Mirror Woods, which has a lot of history of photography, a lot of different things to it. And Uh we have to take a shuttle. in. we're on the shuttle going in. And my daughter, who's just turned five at that point, yells out payphone. And all the adults, because we were in the back of the bus, they just turn around and look at us like, why is a five-year-old yelling at payphone? She gets off the bus. And normally she's good. But this time she got off in her Sunday dress and skipped over to the payphone, picked it up and like it works and all the adults by this point their jaws are on the ground they're like looking for the candid camera like all right what's going on we're we're being (laughs) pumped or something here and so it's just funny also see what our work and how it goes back into the family and like i said with my son part of that's being down here but also seeing some of the work talking about what i'm doing because he gets stuck hearing it all the time when he goes to my opening lectures uh he could probably recite it better than i can actually about a year and a half ago for my penitentiary work, he was at a gallery opening. And I couldn't get the video fast enough, but there was two people looking at one of my pieces that he, he's heard me talk about them before. And so I hear him walk up to the, to the two women. He goes, can I answer any questions? Like, he they, they, just oh, look at him like, well, <laughs> he goes, it's my, my dad's the photographer. And so he starts explaining the piece to him. And I'm just sitting there laughing and I'm just like sitting there just smiling as much as I could. So.
0: Oh, wow. That's amazing. So
1: it's it's amazing how much we rub off on them in good and bad ways.
0: Yeah. 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 I can't wait to see more of that. That's funny. Um, it'd be funny to see what happens with my girls as well. Absolutely. No, that's cool. I think it's a... I think it's another genuine project you've come across though. And I think there's this theme um, sort of in your work, isn't there?
1: Yeah. And it's really, I didn't know what it was at first, what my theme was. And it really mm. has become more of a socioeconomic documentary and kind of history mm. of technology in many ways. Because um, mm. when I was in school younger, history and arts were the my two favorite subjects. And it's kind of really interesting how the two of them have kind of merged in some ways. And we were talking before about growing up. I grew up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which was a steel town. And when mm-hmm. I was in high school, it's when the steel was dying, when they were closing it. And all these photojournalists were descending on Bethlehem. They're cutting holes and fences to get the best vantage point they can. Then, when I was in seniors, when I took my first photo class, and at that same time was when they were descending, and my, Photo teacher at the time showed us a Walker Evans piece from Bethlehem, where it's the cemetery, the homes, and work, which was basically life. Work, home, death, Mm. was the way that he explained it. Mm. And for me, it was like, wait a minute, Bethlehem was that important that somebody came here to document it. And that was the meshing of history and art for photography that kind of hooked me at the time. So.
0: Yeah, that's nice. I mean you've done um, you've done obviously a, a few different um, projects. Um, you've obviously done this for quite a while. I mean, even your little thing about Alamo and Firefighters.
1: Oh the, the Los Alamos. Yeah, yeah, that was and that was actually all done in twenty minutes, that Los Alamos series. I mean you wouldn't know. So that. and it was just it was just an incredible opportunity. We were out in Los Alamos, New Mexico in two thousand with, it was called the Southwest Photo Workshop through RIT. And uh-huh. it was when the fires, they were still going on, but we were able to camp near Bandelier National Park is where we were camped. And we came across yeah. the firefighters. We asked them if it was okay, if we could document them. They said, come back tomorrow at dusk, the bus will be here. Um, Cause basically they were working, I think it was 10 days on and then one or two days off. They worked, for sunrise oh, wow. until dusk and it was a lot of native americans and so i wanted to photograph them and there was one other photographer don tower Bois. she was a faculty member at the time so the two of us went and we were each doing our own thing uh, but i had two four by five cameras with me and so i had two some different areas set up so i was just trying to get through to document all of them because they also had to go eat shower try to sleep we had to be respectful So that's why we had 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And the reason for the type 55, I saw that was one of your questions is Mm -hmm. whenever I work in exchange with people like that, I like to then give them a print. So I was able to give them the positive while I kept the negative. And so it was Polaroid type 55. And they said, for me, it was just as much of giving back even at that time. And we were thanking them. They were thanking us. We're like, why are you thanking us? Like you're breaking up the monotony (laughs) of, Fighting these fires, you're giving us a different experience. Um, oh, so nice. yeah, it was we were. I was just more thankful to them, and everybody kept saying there was just one big thank you back and forth. Um, <laughs> and that's that was this story of those. So it was all within probably about twenty feet of one another that all those portraits were taken, and was working up a sweat for sure. And it's all natural light too.
0: Oh, I mean that that. They had lovely works, lovely pasture. Yeah.
1: It was it was that dusk light up in the mountains of New Mexico. It was just absolutely beautiful.
0: Mm, interesting people. I mean, do you miss um, like port- uh, polaroid for for things like that? There, I
1: do, and the reason is number one, time uh, between teaching. Hmm. Being a father, I tend to be my son's wrestling coach, lacrosse coach, and boy scout leader. So the reason why I used to love Type 55, I used it for my penitentiary work also, was time. Mm. I had it instantly developed. As soon as I pulled the pod, put it in the sodium by sulfate. And that was the reason why I also really enjoyed using it. Um, Now, even still now with processing my own film, the payphone work is all shot on Kodak Portra. Um, sometimes it's Ektar, Okay. And yes, it's black and white, but I have the control in my digital workflow to then pull things yeah. in and out, just like we would with a filter in front of our black yeah. and white film. But now I can pull selectively different colors to enhance yeah. certain areas. So that's the first part of my workflow. Um, and I have the Jobos here. My graduate assistant was helping me over right before winter break it took about seven days to develop 60 rolls of film. RIT got their C41 back up and running their processor. So I was able to go in and develop my own film. I was able to get another 65 rolls done in under three and a half hours. So sometimes
0: oh it's my a God. good old
1: dip and dump system. So sometimes it's about knowing we were talking before about tools, right? The job is yeah. just going too slow. I have this deadline coming up in April. Need to speed it up. And that's where having the resources between RAT and my studio, I am truly spoiled.
0: Well, you know what you're missing. You just need nuclear fission. <laughs> Don't you hate it to that, apparently with one minute? Well,
1: apparently nobody realized there was a nuclear reactor under Kodak Park until when they started closing certain buildings. So we have that in Rochester too.
0: Jeez. <laughs> you thought of everything, you see.
1: <laughs> we try to have fun. <laughs>
0: No, that's amazing. That's a, a hell of a lot of film and shot space. Right yeah,
1: and that's where my project – oh, I don't have my book here. Um, I believe I've shot so far about 600 rolls of 120, and then I still shoot digital as a backup because sometimes you know the moment's fleeting. If I mess up my film or something happens, hmm. there's been three shots that are – I'll give a little secret to your listeners. There's three shots from the Payphone series that are actually – from my Lumix that something happened to the film and I couldn't go back and re-photograph because maybe the phones were ripped out or I couldn't get access again. So I had to use the yeah. digital and I put the film frame back on it because I don't want anybody saying, well, why is that one digital? Why is this one film? That's not part of the yeah. work. So, yeah. so I cheated on three, I guess we would say. Well, I mean. I, I'm not one to add the false frames back in um, the reason they're there is so people realize I shoot on Kodak film, especially this project, because the demise of Kodak, Xerox, Bausch & is what's call, caused our poverty issues in Rochester. So,
0: mm. Yeah, I mean, this is an, an interesting part of history um, for the whole area then, isn't it? Uh,
1: unfortunately, it is. And that's where we're part of the Rust Belt. Um, but... Our city really has not done well with people playing well together, even within the arts, I would say. I moved from Mm -hmm. Philadelphia in 2005, where everybody there tries to collaborate and build each other up as one community, especially the arts, where when I moved up here, it was like everybody had their own flag in the ground, like, this is mine, this is mine. And it's like, but if we work together, we can build something bigger and better and represent the entire city of Rochester. And we just still Mm -hmm. can't really get that going. And that's why I have my own small little community of people. I invite down here to the studio, but Mm. it's still not big enough. So
0: you are only one man there. Yeah.
1: But that's why I like to invite, like I said, other people down here. And then even people from, Mm. I've had visitors from New York, from Las Vegas, who just come play. If you can stay up in the hotel for a Mm. week or so, come use the facilities. And I've had guests do that with pseudo residencies hmm no that's a nice thing
0: like I you say, I mean what else can you do when everyone around you's maybe not pulling in the right direction and you know you're surrounded by poverty and you know lack of facilities for people
1: yeah and that's where they they kind of look at me like I'm doing something wrong which is even more fun uh at times like as if I'm trying to step on everybody's toes by creating this community but it's all right
0: yeah. Yeah. You've got to stay strong, mate, And You know what you're doing.
1: <laughs> yep. Just have to have fun. We were talking yeah. about that earlier too.
0: Yes. Yes. It, <laughs> it's definitely something, um, I think people forget. I mean, my whole photography has been about learning, um, to use a camera. And then as soon as I sort of learned that it was fun because I relaxed into yeah, it.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's where my wife sometimes will be like, you need to go out and photograph. Like you're getting yeah. too strung up. You need to you can go. Yeah. And just doing that, I just, I love spending time with my kids, my family, uh, doing all extra things, mm-hmm. teaching, but just going out and photographing, I just, it's just a different enjoyment in my brain. That's the only way to put it.
0: So. Yeah. I'm, I'm exactly the same. I think I go between these different mindsets. That's obviously, you know, this stumbling block for a lot of people at the minute, um, because it, you can't do the thing you want.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's where luckily going out photographing payphones—they don't have COVID. So I yeah. haven't been able to get as much because a lot of them are in different facilities, which I can't get into. But also, there was a time yeah. where you just didn't want to be around anybody on the streets, so it stopped that for a bit. Yeah. But there have been times where I've been able to at least get out and photograph, um, and even just with my kids—you know—just get them out of the house by riding along and photographing and doing something other than being in there and that's another blessing of having a studio that's completely separate is my daughter will come down will throw canvas on the floor and she paints on the hardwood floors i have memories of my daughter now because there's paint everywhere on the floor Which, if i ever nice. go to sell this building i'm going to have to take everything out and redo the floors anyway so just let her enjoy mm-hmm. it let her be creative that's, so
0: yeah that's great that's a lovely sentiment that I think a lot of us don't get that opportunity, do we? Because everything's done in our homes, sort of thing.
1: Yeah, no, that's where it's it definitely has made my family's life a lot easier with COVID. Is being able to come down here and escape. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, even today I was talking to um, someone, uh, a client that uh, I work with, and they were saying they can actually go to work, like, although it's not far from their home. That they get that privilege, whereas the rest of us are obviously working from home. You're at home with your family. You're either listening to them doing remote learning, Um, and then where can you go at night? Because it's been winter, so we haven't been able to go out. So, Um, and obviously, we're still very much in lockdown here at the minute. So,
1: yeah, and that's where now. Luckily, with all the snow, at least the kids can go outside and just play in the snow and just. And I mean, my daughter will come in. She won't come in until she's bone freezing because she just doesn't want to be in the house. Which, hey, it's better than her being as we talked before about just wanting to be inside all the time. So very happy there.
0: Yeah. I I think it's something about being outside. So maybe we've got that mutual interest that um, actually it's an outside thing. Mm -hmm. Probably always has been, probably just not thought about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's where I'm hoping that uh, this summer, if things die down a little bit, that we can travel and just camp. Don't need to be in hotels. Mm. My wife and I—we've camped, mm-hmm. you know, for weeks at a time out in the southwest of the United States. My son's name is Check Bryce out. after Bryce Canyon.
0: Oh, I Bryce want Canyon. to get him to see
1: Bryce Canyon. My daughter—everybody thought we were gonna name her Ziana or something, uh, which is Viviana, <laughs> not Ziana. Uh, but just yeah. get them to see what's outside of New York State, and we don't mm-hmm. have to be around people because we can camp and stay to ourselves. So,
0: yeah. No, I understand That's a nice sentiment. We all need it, uh, without a doubt. Um, I mean, I'm missing... um, It's quite weird that I'm actually missing the um, portraiture side now. And I I never thought about it, because I always enjoyed going to these um, group shoots that we used to do. um, So there'd be, uh, say, five or six um, photographers, maybe five or six models. And it was never really my thing, as I always said, I never really knew what to do and how to pose people. I could never direct. But after probably 18 months of doing it off and on, now I'm thinking, actually, I really miss it.
1: it it's also showing that you're missing human inter- interaction and what you gain from yeah. that. Just Even if it's just a quick interaction with somebody for a portrait, you're still learning something about that person and taking yeah. part of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it wasn't just, um, taking a picture, um, how they wanted it or how you wanted it. It was actually getting to know them a bit. And then you sort of got to know what suited them, uh, whether it's body shape or, um, how comfortable they were. And one I posted today was, um, my riskiest one ever because I'm not comfortable with, um, models not wearing much. Um, so I said, um, It was quite an eye-opener, and it was a Halloween shoot. So people came in and different things. And then I turned around, and she had not a lot of clothing on. But we'd been really comfortable. We worked together loads of times, and actually, the pictures were quite nice. So I just put them up, and I said, you know, thank you for pushing me.
1: And making you do something outside your box. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, because you've got to push yourself, haven't you? Absolutely. And that's where... Um, and that's what I tell my students also, even with even if you work on the same project, if you're not developing mm-hmm. it and pushing it further, whether it's learning mm-hmm. portraiture or like this payphone project, I try to explain my mm-hmm. students like even and the penitentiary work, there was different phases where you're thinking mm-hmm. one way, you go back, take a month or so or two off, go back to it, and you kind of start to see what are you missing? What do you need to add? What's the story you have so far? And as you learn more, a lot of my projects really have a lot of research to them. So as I'm learning more, the photographs are changing. And that's something where uh, viewers can't see it, but what's on behind me on my wall is really some of my latest round, which is it's a lot more about the barriers. And one of my colleagues, we talked about this, it's really about the barriers that people have to go through to get to the payphones, whether it's a barrier of snow, uh, it could be just barrier of um, a sunken highway that you'd have to cross over to get to it. So a lot of those ideas. Um, but again, it's that next narrative, and it will change further because I still have 750 more payphones to go. So, uh, mm. and another, sorry.
0: It's, a, it's really interesting in that sense um, that it's probably something that's actually been in a lot of our lives, but we don't notice it.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's also we're leaving a lot of people behind. We're lucky enough to have the technology to do this interview, our, our cell phones, yes. but there's a lot of people that technology is moving so fast. <laughs> Whether we talk about photography, um, communi- communication technology, but not everybody can keep up with how fast technology is moving, and that's the other part of this work. And kind of that private go back now series that I have, that's really about, that was really my first look at, economy and technology and how things are moving so quickly. And, you know, for the upper class, it's all about this is my private area. Um, Mm. You you know, I'm privileged, so I can have this. And that's what that particular series is about. Because of that. So uh, but yeah, no, the pay phones, like you said, we're all moving way too quickly with our uh, cell phones. But at the same time, my cell phone and Instagram, Facebook, have helped this project to grow my audience. Mm-hmm. A lot of people would never collect my photography, but they're Rochesterians that are following what I'm doing. And mm-hmm. they will tell me stories. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget. I posted one. There was supposed to be four pay phones, but when I showed up, they were gone. And it looked like the spirit of three of them was left. It was like a ghost outline on the bricks. Wow! And I posted that on Instagram, talking about how it looked like the spirits of the three phones, even though it was supposed to be four and within a minute somebody direct messaged me and said you know three people were killed there three weeks ago so then there was this so i went to the news made sure it was legit and sure enough three people were killed there three weeks ago and it looked like and not against the wall per se where what i saw was the spirit of the three payphones. but then there's all these other things like the price of the food was three dollars and 33 cents i'm like there's something weird happening here um but there's a lot of stories like that that I've gotten out of Instagram or interacting with people. Yeah, I yeah. will talk to the local drug dealer who's out on the street because he sees me with my film camera. He knows I'm not a police officer. He knows I'm not surveilling. It's opened yeah. up so much interaction with people where there have been some times where I will have an assistant with me or someone because – the areas, and I'm—I hate to be labeling it—but these areas are known statistically for the highest murder area of Rochester. So I'll have somebody mm. with me, and there's a video documentary being made. So we'd have a third person because we have a lot of gear on us. Um, mm. But at the same time, it's the people are just inquisitive. Like, why are they? Why is he videotaping you with your film camera? And you know, we'll never <laughs> use some of that footage, but just the conversations that come out of it are where i get to learn i get to learn so much
0: yeah i think this it, it's a quite a common thing now where when you're doing a project like this the community do come out and because we've all moved to social media it's easier for everyone to now get hold of people isn't it?
1: yeah and um not just that not even rochester but there's a gentleman um los An- or payphones of los angeles his name is ryan steven green who's a a video documentary or a producer out in Mm -hmm. LA. We've started working together. He's recording stories for me out in LA. So now there's Mm -hmm. this payphone photography community growing where that's what I'm saying. This can go nationwide. What I want to start doing is mapping all the payphones. If they submit an image, if it's geotagged, it will will populate Mm -hmm. to the map and we can start to then look at even that census information. So take that audience Mm -hmm. that's on Instagram and build something more, I don't want to say stable, but more viable for the future to look back on this period of time as a broader package. So,
0: No, that's cool. It, it, it's funny because payphones have obviously had a similar effect uh, in our community in the UK. So um, like I said, I wasn't from a rich family. Um, we didn't even have house phones where all our friends did so, I remember running to the payphone to call friends when I needed. Um, my parents spent most of their life not having a phone, I never understood it. Um, and then you see what's happening now is that most of them have gone. Um, but I'm pretty sure you're familiar with the red letterbox Absolutely. slots here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, they're quite a niche thing, same as letterboxes. Um, people often buy them or steal them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the next village to me, they use it as a theme uh, and they'll dress it up for like Christmas, Easter, Halloween, and the village does it. And I'm like, that's
1: fantastic. Absolutely.
0: So I thought, do you know what? I might start a project where I'll, I'm going to get involved with the community and I'll go take a picture each season, it changes. Um, and then I spotted another village. There was like uh, a shelf and bottles and books, I think, in another one. And I thought, and that's even before I saw your work. So it's a bit like, um, you, maybe this has a potential international. Yeah. And
1: it's, it's getting people back to something physical, which isn't the cell phone. And that's where the gentleman, yeah. um, who's running the company, Futel, part of what he's doing, because mm. the people that I interviewed that are still using the phones, the number one thing that all of them say is I hate how people look at me when I'm on the payphone, all of them across the board, because they're like, everybody looks at me like I'm calling my drug dealer or. You know, I'm doing something wrong oh. or I'm calling my family and let them know I'm alive or I'm calling my doctor. They're using it mm-hmm. for lifeline communication. And there's that stereotype, again, that's being applied. So what they're doing with the Futel uh, free phones is mm-hmm. you might be able to, number one, you can get a voicemail box so you can access it across the entire network. So if your kid's mm-hmm. school is trying to call you, if your doctor's trying to call you, they can now leave a voicemail. But you can also make it where, let's say it's right here in Rochester, in the Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass neighborhood. We can Mm -hmm. actually have it installed where then they could actually dial a number and hear about the history of Susan B. Anthony. If you want to hear Mm -hmm. about her childhood, hit this number or, um, you know, Mm -hmm. all the different aspects of just Susan B. Anthony. And then that means now, obviously not during COVID because nobody wants to touch it, But after COVID, it'll be one of those things where it breaks down that barrier for those that actually need to use it for its purpose. So Mm -hmm. that's, these are some of the things that after I, as I work on this photo project, I want to try to work with Futel to get them here in Rochester. Um, This Mm -hmm. project has taken over my life. Is the only way to put it. (laughs) It's going places. And the best part for me is the collaboration. I'm working with a librarian. Uh, at rit rebecca walker who's helping me to make the maps better work with people in the criminal justice department to learn more um and that's the biggest thing for me is just trying to learn as much as i can and work with other like-minded and cool people Mm.
0: so no it's amazing i i love it yeah i think it's an amazing thing i obviously want to make sure we got time to talk about your um penitentiary works obviously um this is uh, Through Art
1: Will Give? Oh, yeah. The uh, series is titled The Art Will Give.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because the photos, um, I mean, one that really stood out was like, is it like a basement? Maybe. And there's a little bit of light seeping through. Uh,
1: the drapery? That's yeah. That's actually yeah, that's, that's actually it. one of the cell blocks that's falling back. And what happened was it was snowing because I was in there about – I say it was in there 362 different times and I'd be there the only one in the middle of the winter there, but the wall was falling back. So the snow slid down and it's at the bottom of the floor and the window above was broken. So that's where the snow's coming out at you. Um, so that's the first penitentiary in the United States. It was actually built by the British architect. John Haviland was the designer of the penitentiary.
0: Okay.
1: Um, there's water, a lot of Quaker support for the penitentiary, And the idea was back then in the 1820s, 1830s, over in England, you had jails where, you know, 25 people in a holding cell, a lot of bad things Mm -hmm. happened. Well, the Quakers believed that, you know, if you gave penance to God, that you could be reformed. And that's where the word penitentiary actually is derived from Um, Mm -hmm. that belief. But that's where John Haviland designed the penitentiary, that it was solitary confinement the entire time initially. So with that, when you would enter your cell, it was a small door because that way you would bow to God as you're entering, but it had heat and plumbing before the White House did here in the United States. And so the idea of the window, it was your way to vent your cell, but it was also your your way to communicate with God. And that's where you see that very spiritual lighting throughout this penitentiary for that reason. It was also at the highest place in Philadelphia because you want to be reminded where you didn't want to wind up if you did something wrong. Um, And so for me, I would rent it out with, for my students. What happened was after I started teaching at RIT in 2000 and 2001, my mentor Lou Draper, who I learned from at Mercer County community college passed away after I had an exhibit there in November, he died actually 19 years ago today that we're doing this uh, interview. And so, it went through a national search. It was run by a four-year school. I wound up getting the position. So I would take my students from the community college down to the penitentiary on Mondays when it was closed to the public, and it was just another place with peeling paint that photographers love. I had no interest in photographing it, but I, um, at the same time as running the photo program at the community college, I worked on my MFA in book arts and printmaking at the University of Arts in Philly. And my bookbinding professor was Hattie Kyle, who's infamous within the book arts world. And she was the head conservator at the American Philosophical Society, which is part of Independence Hall. And we went for a tour one day, or just a visit. And I walked in, and right in front of me, I'll never forget, I could still vision exactly what it looked like when I walked in, were the logbooks for the Eastern State Penitentiary from 1820. I believe those were 1829 to maybe 1833. There was three of them. And the yeah. penmanship, I, I opened it. We were supposed to be looking at other stuff. I literally sat in a, a stool and I did not move. I was one of those students that you would hate that was not listening at all. <laughs> and they were falling apart. So they were, she was talking about how they couldn't allow them to be checked out any longer by researchers. Mm-hmm. And so they weren't really the wardens logbooks I've come to learn. They're more of an advisor to the warden that would do an interview. And so it talked about the prisoners, their race, what they were in for. The, remember, because this was solitary confinement, it was male and female. And mm. so what they wrote about the prisoners and the penmanship, I started to get a, a vision a, and a sense of the penitentiary. And so I made an agreement with Haiti to go back in and I photographed every page of every book and gave them a copy of it because that way people could check it out. I had all the files and I would read four to six pages before I would go and photograph every day. And so over a three year period of time, I was in there about 362 days. So I joke with my wife, if I do something wrong, I should have close to one year's credit. Um, I'd be at there at night with ghost hunters. Uh, we had all sorts of fun. I'd be the only person in there in the winter and Again, that's why also showing the logbooks and then taking some of the photos are text and imagery, and some are straight photos. And the reason for that was that was my influence. Otherwise, it was just another decaying. As a lot of people call it here in the United States, it was ruin porn, where you know people Mm -hmm. just always photographers always want that peeling paint, and that was not what I was going for with that particular series. I've been very fortunate with that. That's what won the um, Open Series Award at the Association of Photography. It's been in lens work. I've had about 24 solo exhibitions throughout the United States with it. So I've been wow. very, very fortunate. But that was all shot film too. But it brings my RIT Big Shot background into it because hmm. all of those are painted with light. So whether it's the four by five exposures, the medium format, um, when it's in the cell, it's so dark. So I'm actually there with big two million candle watt lights and I'm painting the light.
0: Oh god, that's a lot. Of so power.
1: sometimes I overdid it and had to correct it in Photoshop later on, or sometimes it didn't yeah. come across. I'm one of those people that believe in using all the tools. So between the big flashlights and then post-processing yeah. in the dark room, it's all about trying to get that vision and what I was feeling across. So that's the quick yeah. overall. Um, explanation and actually those that particular series is what I would say really got me to the point where I was working with Inova fine art paper um, uh-huh. the one of the owners is here in New Jersey in the Camden New Jersey area and the other okay. everybody else is over in in just north of London and so the gentleman had come to one of my other exhibitions which is my panorama series it's called peripheral visions And Wayne Connolly, who's the owner here that's in the United States, came to my penitentiary work, and he comes over and he hits me. I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, are you busting my chops? I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, are you busting my chops? I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, come here. And we walk over, and this is not planned. This is just serendipity. He goes, this could be my my great-grandmother. And I read it, and it was Eliza Connolly. She tried to poison the gentleman and woman with whom she lived. And it was just a complete icebreaker. And... From oh, that God. point forward, um, helping with the color management part of the profiles, like I said, they took me to Photokina. I was in PMA in England, Australia. But I take it back to that one page that somehow I happened decided to include yeah. in that exhibition. So I tell my students all the time, sometimes it's just that dumb luck. Yeah. That we all hear it being the right place at the right time. Well, it's not just that. It's also mm-hmm. then having those tools and, and the information to move forward with it so but yeah that's that series i've done pretty well with that particular series over a period of time
0: mm. nice it's definitely interesting because i think there's a lot of us that are interested in this element of history and choosing photography to document it is just your medium
1: isn't yeah it? and that's where again without those word in law books i would have never photographed there um, I saw it with my mm-hmm. students too. A lot of times when they would go in there, they'd be like, oh, my God, this is awesome. And all, all, many photographers have the same problem where you're so enamored by a location or a place that you're just you're mm-hmm. photographing, photographing. You get back. You get your work back. You're like, these are all crap. And mm-hmm. because they were so overwhelmed, so the next time we would go back, I would say, remember how you got nothing good last time? They're like, yeah. You are locked into this area and these four cell blocks or four cell cells for the entire day. They're like, get out of here. I'm like, no, you're not moving the entire day beyond these four cells. This is your area. Nobody Mm -hmm. else is going to come in and disturb you. And they would wind up pulling better work because they had to look. They really had to decide what was important to them. And it was just Mm -hmm. one of those lessons for, you know, maturing as a photographer. So... Yeah. We had some good times.
0: Mm, sounds like that. that takes time, though, doesn't it, uh, the learning side?
1: Yeah, and especially when you get overwhelmed by such a cool place for for them. Mm. And some of them created some really, really nice work that's probably better than the work I made there. I'll never let mm. them know which ones, but no. Nah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fair enough. But I think you're right uh, as well that you need to go back. Mm-hmm multiple times. Yeah.
1: And that's where I'm not joking when I say I was in there about 362 times and there was a period where I took Mm -hmm. a month or two off and it was so Mm -hmm. surreal walking back in that day. I'm like, I feel like I'm at home because I knew what I was about to start doing again. I was about to start photographing for a long period of time. And then the last three months I was down in that area. My wife packed our entire house so I could be in there every day before we moved back to Rochester. Um, my last mm-hmm. night there, I was there with some ghost hunters. And so it was about four o'clock in the morning. We're getting ready to leave. And sometimes myself and the staff, we would just turn off all the lights and sit in the middle rotunda just to see if we, after the ghost hunters were gone, if we, if we mm-hmm. saw anything. And I mm-hmm. unfortunately never saw anything. I really wanted to, um, mm-hmm. but when we're walking out, I'm like, do you guys want to go up to the, the main guard tower? Like, we don't know how to get up there. I'm like, uh, you live across the street, right? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, well, go go grab a six pack, come back. I'll show you how to get up there. And they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, because they were really good. They gave me the codes to go wherever I wanted to throughout the penitentiary. So wow. my closing for the project was watching a thunderstorm roll into Philadelphia at four o'clock in the morning, sitting up on that main guard tower, having a beer with these uh, these staff members. I was like, all right, that's it. I'm done done photographing
0: what a nice way to end it
1: really was in in a way nothing like having a beer or two and then learning there was a basement that i never went into so it was okay so
0: do you think it shook you up then a little bit about maybe how tough times were back then
1: actually it was kind of the opposite what i learned was from those logs is that crime Hasn't really changed. We think okay. about how things are today. We think rape, uh, murder, all the burglary, all these things are new, or because of how we're progressing as a society, or falling apart as huh. a society. But then you read from the 1820s, 1830s, and 1840s, the same thing was happening. Um, just like Eliza Connolly, she tried to poison the gentleman and woman with whom she lived. I huh. mean, that's something you think of as you know, a crime novel on TV or something nowadays. <laughs> And unfortunately, yeah. many of the same crimes we have today, except for cyber theft, obviously, but we're, mm. they were all happening back then. And that's the one thing it, I would say I was more humbled by that, realizing that things really haven't changed, unfortunately. So I would say that was my biggest lesson that I pulled out of it.
0: Yeah, yeah. We don't change that much. History repeats itself all the time. Uh, unfortunately,
1: it? And that's why I made that Mm. fake news project hoping that people will learn Mm. from what happened over here in the United States for the past four years. Uh, And that's why it's the Donald J. Trump, it's an archive of, it's an art fake news, a historical archive of the Donald J. Trump presidency is the true title of it. Uh, Because I want people, Mm. no matter what side you are on, you can look at the entire events of those four years. And you just talked about history repeating, well Mm. we can see if we learn from that in either way whether you're left-leaning or right-leaning here in the united states but what have we learned from it Mm -hmm. so
0: yeah i think you're right because i think long term wise this is what you're going to be doing in it looking back at history and thinking um say like ronald reagan people would laugh that uh, um an actor can make it into being president um Mm -hmm. but then you would say the same thing about trump how could that man ever have won
1: i don't know and that's where that entire project again started because of my kids um when the trump Mm -hmm. clinton uh election was going on my son's Mm -hmm. school had to hold a mock election because the kids were no longer playing on the playground they were debating about hillary versus trump instead of playing soccer or as you would call it football and uh american football whatever they're trying to do so they held a mock election and we asked my son who are you going to vote for and we never talked politics he was in first grade and he belts out i'm going to vote for trump because hillary's going to make china great again and my wife and i kind of did a double take like where'd you learn that because we don't talk about this stuff is what i saw it on tv the next sunday we're watching american football and Sure enough, here comes a commercial about how Hillary is going to be China greater grand. It's black and white. It's missiles. It's all this stuff. And we're like, oh, my God, we have to talk to our son about politics as a first grader. So after the election was over, I started documenting only CNN because that's what was being attacked the most. And then I realized, Uh you know what? No, I need to do more so that he'll be able to observe more. Well, then all of a sudden people started learning about what I was doing. and Everybody's like, this is going to be an archive. I'm like, what? So then i realized with my background being a book artist i'm like all right maybe this will be something i'll try to get every day cnn abc fox new york times washington post and then it turned yeah. to multiple times every day then when COVID hit it turned into not just the headlines but scrolling down um so in the end there's i think it's over thirty-five thousand seven hundred sixty-five screenshots that are in the books 15 volumes um it And I hope to put this into archives and special collections, especially universities, so people can study it. But it will always be a free archive, as we've been talking about all this entire duration. My belief is everybody should have access to that information. So it will live as a free archive on fakenewsarchiveproject.com. Anybody can access it. I still have seven volumes to process. So right now, only the first eight are up there. But the idea is, again, I want to make sure that if we're truly making sure we learn from that, everybody needs Mm. access, not just the people that can afford it at universities uh, for those archives. So,
0: Yeah. And imagine what you've got. I mean, you can't imagine what the next four years are going to bring. And I don't just mean in political and real terms, but what what is it going to mean for photographers and artists their projects. You just don't know. Dude. No, we don't.
1: Especially with galleries being forced to close, um, movie mm-hmm. theaters. One of the oldest movie theaters here in Rochester just announced today they're closing for good. Um, so we don't have no idea what society is going to be like when we come out the other end of COVID. Unfortunately, it's really mm-hmm. showing how um, we don't take care of the arts and certain pieces of the humanities very well here in the United States, at least.
0: Yeah. Well. I- I think that's probably worldwide, to be honest, in some Mm -hmm. ways. Right. Well, I think that's the formal part of the interview done there, Eric. And um, I think it's time to put you through my fun random questions. Uh (laughs) So you know what's coming. I've heard one or two. (laughs) Yeah. Okay.
1: Are you ready? I hope so.
0: Are you ready as you ever can be? Okay. Right. So... You are approached by a random person on the street who likes your camera. He tells you he works on animation on Hollywood films. And he's asked if you want to take some pictures um, for a local event, which sounds interesting. He then mentions dragons have been asleep for 2,000 years but are now awake. What do you say?
1: so will this photo event be photographing the dragons
0: <laughs> no it would be um local um politicians say
1: local politicians uh mm-hmm. i would say i'm sorry i'm almost out of my film and I, I but i i know some other good photographers that i could recommend that's what i would have to say yes especially if it's politicians
0: do you know what Oh, God. Uh, it was a local mayor over here. Um, do you know what yep, a mayor yep. is? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, this is a true event. This actually happened to me. I had my Bronica. And I didn't know if the guy was taking the mick first. And then I thought, no, he's actually insane. That, that I think once I walked away, I thought, that guy is just absolutely crazy.
1: Yeah, I'd be afraid that he'd be leading me to do something incorrect with the politician. And that's why i have to be like oh i'm yes. sorry I'm, I'm I just saw my last my last frame of my film. I don't have any more on me,
0: <laughs> but he even told me he did the eyes for Bumblebee in transformers oh, so, so he's very yeah. specific, and there is a little bit of um a couple of companies in my um city that are involved, yep. so I was like. It's plausible, but like, no, this guy's just... But I, I
1: think he was leading his trouble, so I would have to say, I'm sorry, I'm on my last frame <laughs> of film.
0: No, I, I totally agree with you. I like that. Um, okay, what ice cream flavor would you like to invent?
1: That's an easy one. Dr. Pepper. For those that know me, they know I have <sighs> a serious addiction to Dr. Pepper. My students know if they want to get, if they do something wrong, they want to warm me up a little bit, they just bring, bring me a cold Dr. Pepper. <laughs>
0: so. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. The rim one is there. They've never done like that with I don't
1: believe so. So,
0: I'd I'd imagine it'd be probably one of the most unhealthiest things on the planet. Probably. Yeah,
1: just like my addiction is. I know that for sure. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Do you know Dr. Used to be my favorite. Yeah, I, I...
1: Luckily, nobody else can see this on uh, on TV or. But here's my uh, my current trash can. <laughs> so.
0: Oh my And there's God. a few that have
1: spilled over. So, yeah, no, I have a problem. I'm admitting it here.
0: <laughs> you just have to sponsorship, aren't yeah, you? Yeah,
1: no. I, I'm trying to break the habit.
0: <laughs> no, I like that. Um, okay. A new law has passed and you can only own one lens. What would well, it be? Well, that's easy.
1: My 40 millimeter for my Hasselblad. Uh, 95% of my photographs in the payphone series are taken with the 40 millimeter on the Hasselblad. I've always, this is my, we didn't talk about, but all my images, I've always seen wide angle. I don't know why. I've been told. Mm-hmm. I was told by a professor at RIT once, you can't take a good photograph with a fisheye. I said, well, I raised my hand, and said I've been told. And he said by who? I said Lou Draper. He goes, I grew up with Lou. If Lou said, bring in an image tomorrow and I'll be the judge. I brought in. He goes, I stand corrected. How the hell did you do this? Mike, I don't know this. I just see wide angle. All of my photographs.
0: Okay.
1: Um, I don't think I've ever put on my hassle at anything. I've never used my 80 millimeter. I use my 40, I have a 50 and a 60. The 60 is as telephoto as I go.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: So, that's now you're and even on my 4x5 i have a 47 xl a 65 and a 90. i never touched
0: oh my god i never
1: touched my 120 150 210 in fact i should just sell them off by this point they're never used
0: so, my god that must be ultra wide on large format. yeah
1: i'm trying to think if there's anything that you saw um one of the, them from the penitentiary where there's arches coming down and three hallways that would be the, yeah, for the Thou Art Will Give for the listeners. You'll see there's three hallways, there's wooden arches above. That is shot with the 47 XL, so you can see how wide it is. So,
0: gee, what well, I mean, what is that equivalent? A, a 10?
1: Probably be a, or a maybe, yeah, probably 10, 11, somewhere around there. 10, 11, yeah. So, oh
0: my god,
1: I'm an odd one. That's crazy. I don't
0: know anyone who does that. that yeah,
1: I'm weird. I'm all wide-angle. Even those portraits were all taken with the 90 that we're talking about from Los Alamos.
0: Yeah, that's nice, though. Right, and uh, very different one for you now. So you have to either <clears throat> have a punch, a present, or a pint with each of the following. So you've got... Eric Cantona, the famous footballer, Eric Cartman from South Park, or Eric Clapton? So you got punch,
1: present, and pint. The punch would be South Park. <laughs> I could understand that. Um, and there was the pint. What was the other one? Um, present. present I'd give to your footballer, since I'm not much of a soccer yep. fan, and that way he can back out quickly. Okay. But Eric Clapton would definitely be a pint. Definitely be a pint. Get to learn a lot from them. It'd actually be more like a keg, I think. I get
0: through all that history. Oh, my God. What what a legend, Mm -hmm. though. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. Thank you for that. Okay. Um, The digital world is full of updates and upgrades. But what function or part of your body would you like to update or upgrade
1: the hard drive in my brain? I feel mm. like it's getting full.
0: I think that comes with age, doesn't it? And COVID. <laughs>
1: yeah, so yeah, it,
0: yeah, mine's mine's bad. My so. joke,
1: I actually use that quite often. I need to upgrade my my hard drive, so
0: yeah, no, no, that's cool. I like that. Um, uh, okay, your last one you've entered the afterlife and you get to choose any animal and they will bond with you for eternity.
1: What would you choose? And this one's a tough one. Any animal. Shh, you stumped me on this one.
0: <laughs> stumped an educator. Now that that's mission accomplished. Yeah,
1: I'd probably have to say uh, maybe a uh, a gorilla and the reason is but a smaller okay. gorilla because that way they would give back reps as much as i wanted um. <laughs> it is the afterlife so we can dream yeah exactly
0: yeah yeah life isn't gonna be normal yeah i can't
1: say like our pets at home dog and cat that would be too easy so i would I think yeah. a gorilla for a nice gentle massage every day i would want one
0: and I like that, because that's very different, and it's you. So,
1: yeah, I'm definitely
0: <laughs> odd. well, I like that. Uh, no, thank you very much uh, for going through those you're, areas. You're that's welcome. Good. So do you want to tell all our lovely listeners where they can check out all your amazing work? Um,
1: my website is simply just Eric erickunsman, which is E-R-I-C. Kunsman is K-U-N-S-M-A-N.com. And my Instagram handle is just Eric underscore Kunzman. And
0: if you're interested
1: in the studio, the book arts, part of what I do in the printing for the people, that's just booksmartstudio.com. I almost forgot that part.
0: (laughs) No, that's cool. I'll get them obviously in the show notes for you. And then obviously the last question, which I'm pretty sure you're going to know, I was asked for some sort of recommendation. Uh, Have you got anyone in mind?
1: Uh, that is Nick. No, not Nick. No, this is and I other some of your other guests have said the same thing. We're like, this is the hardest question because of how many people I know. But I'm gonna challenge yeah. you to something different. I want you to okay. photograph a power couple in photography right now. And that would be Wayne Martin Belger and Alana Aratom. They're both in Tucson, Arizona. They're a couple. Uh, they're both powerhouse yeah. photographers right now for different reasons, but They also do a lot with social, justice, um, economic, history, um, and race and class. So I would challenge you, because I can't just name one, and this gets me off with all my friends for not saying them, that I'm actually (laughs) going for a couple. And that's why I can actually try to nominate them.
0: No, that's cool. I
1: I challenge you to have both of them on, because they're both great people and great characters.
0: Okay, that's going to be interesting. So that's my
1: challenge to you. Sorry. (laughs)
0: no 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 i've always looked for a challenge eric no that's wicked so all i can say is um thanks so much for coming on thank you for
1: having me it was it was a lot of fun i will tell you that